0: I'm here with Anne-Marie Knott. She's a professor teaching strategy and entrepreneurship at Washington University at St. Louis. And she's also a former researcher at Hughes. And we're here today to talk about her book, How Innovation Really Works. Anne-Marie, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric.
0: I want to start with your experience doing research and development at Hughes, which, of course, used to be a big defense contractor before they merged several years ago, several decades ago now. So can you just talk a little bit about Hughes and your career there? And then how was R&D managed and how did that change over time at Hughes?
1: So Hughes was fabulous. I was in the missile systems group. We were a big company, so each of the different groups were in different buildings around the Los Angeles area. And so you got to work with really smart people. You got to work on really interesting problems. And one way to capture how the company viewed R and D was that when you wanted to propose a project, it was just a one-page sheet. It wanted you to give the title for the project, what you were hoping to accomplish how many people you needed, and how long you thought it would take. And that was it. And what would happen is all of these would get submitted up to ultimately what we used to call the College of Cardinals. These were all PhD scientists and engineers who understood the technical merits of most of these projects, or collectively did. And we would all wait for the white smoke to appear. (laughs) And in my case, it almost always appeared.
0: What was interesting, actually, you brought in some of that experience from Hughes into your book. You had a couple vignettes about different technology programs and and how they interacted and what you learned from them. So was there one or two that you might want to just uh, bring up for our audience here?
1: The one that I remember talking about, I never really talked about my own projects, I don't think. But by way of backdrop, there's a stylized fact that 125 projects of those, only about one becomes a commercial success. So the most likely outcome of any project is that it's going to fail or be abandoned. And the neat thing about a company like Hughes was that we were so large that if something failed for a particular application, there was often another application somewhere in the company. So one technology was ion beam propulsion, so ion beam technology. And it turns out that military satellites, that was its intended use, only have a five-year life and a five-year life the technology doesn't pay for itself so it was abandoned for that application but they discovered that they could use it for implantation of layers on semiconductors in another one of the groups.
0: Yeah, I think the you brought up the success curve. Just like one in thousands of projects actually succeeds. And you talked a little bit about that in your book. And I thought maybe we would, we would pivot to talk about that because it seems like something that occurs across like the markets. We VCs talk about the same thing. You were pointing out that drugs through FDA approval, it's one in several thousand. So they all have this success curve. So what does that mean? If you're a fund allocator, what would you do with having that knowledge or what are the strategies available to you?
1: Well, the, so there's a few. It's very similar to VCs. The first is that you carry a portfolio. So companies recognize if only one in, and one in 125 is successful, then you want to carry maybe 125 at a minimum. The second thing is that you want to be very good at pulling the plug. Because your ability to fund projects is a function of how much you spend on each of those projects. Companies that are very good at managing the success for curves, Curve, Exit Early, some of my research deals with Exit. I think those are the main ones.
0: Yeah, I think when I think about, okay, I need a thousand <laughs> trials to get one major success. And of course, you get the asymmetric upsides from that. But it seems like one of the issues is, and what we've been hearing, isn't that... Like the scarcity isn't necessarily dollars that are going after these types of projects or R&D, but it's actually like a scarcity of people or talent. So if I do a thousand things, are there a thousand people that are or am I going to be getting the same people coming back through this pipeline? Does that kind of does the scarcity idea affect where you're going to be allocating those resources?
1: There's a common view, is that there's a scarcity of idea and people. It turns out that companies are actually over-investing in R&D. <laughs> so they've just got the people in the wrong places.
0: <laughs> That's a very interesting point of view. And you brought up a lot of instances where... It was actually like a lot of these new startups, they didn't come out of the blue, right? They were actually learning from the large companies where they were those ideas and take the discarded ideas and then scale them. So can you just talk a little bit about that relationship?
1: Sure. Everybody thinks that the solution to growth is to sponsor more entrepreneurship from the book and others who've read it will know that my belief is that the growth problem is directly related to the fact that there's been a 65% decline in companies R&D productivity. And I'm not the only one to have documented that was originally documented by Chad Jones back in 1995 at the economy level. So the thing that people are pointing to when they say we need to sponsor more entrepreneurship is that there's been a fairly dramatic decline in the founding rate of firms. And I did a study where I actually showed that the founding rate of firms follows the decline in R&D productivity with a lag. I can do that across markets, or I could do that uh, just in the US market. But the reason is that most ideas for new ventures come from somebody, the founder who's been working inside a firm, and he sees a project that the company wants to abandon. Remember about 124 of 125 are abandoned. uh, They fall in the project, they say, This project doesn't have a big enough market to keep the company happy. What's got a big enough market to keep me happy? And then they leave. So if companies are doing a poor job in generating projects, they're less productive. Then they're also going to be less productive in producing this byproduct, which is firm founders.
0: We definitely want to get back into your measure of research and development productivity, the RQ. But I want to start with some of like the empirics and the big picture questions, because especially in the Department of Defense, we've been hearing a lot of folks talking about how like federal spending on research and development, and especially in the military itself, has just been declining over time since the 50s and the 60s, and particularly for the early stages in research. What's your reaction to those claims?
1: There has been a dramatic decline, but everybody thinks, as you said, that it's in research and there's been absolutely no decline in research. And I don't understand. There's whole books that are coming out using that as the motivating the motivating argument for funding entrepreneurship, et cetera, et cetera, and funding universities. All of the decline, going back to the 1950s, all of the decline is in development and that's what goes to firms. I don't understand why this isn't being recognized. It's in all of it's well documented in National Science Foundation data.
0: A lot of people have been asking for the government for example to target a higher number like 3 even up to 5% for science and technology. Do you think that those kinds of quotas are something that should be done or do you think that it's overblown and we're actually at a pretty good place right now in terms of that distribution? <laughs>
1: right now, we're not at a good because there's not enough development. But in terms of the percentage of the GDP that the federal government spends on research, that stayed absolutely the same. The problem with having something stay absolutely the same is you're not running any experiments. You don't know whether you raise it or lower, it's going to affect GDP. The only thing that we do know because we've changed it is the level of development. And that's declined and GDP growth has declined as well.
0: Yeah. So one thing I think we often get into these problems when we talk about R&D because we say, okay, it was this many dollars or this many dollars as a percentage of GDP, but we don't really have a way to connect that to outcomes or the effectiveness of that R&D. So that then becomes this big kind of social science and maybe like historical kind of project. But you have a measure that is pretty well-defined in terms of data and what it means, and you call it the, the RQ. So can you just describe what is the RQ? and how do you estimate it?
1: Uh, So RQ uh, stands for research quotient. It's intendedly that company equivalent of individual iq and so i think of it as how smart companies are so just as smart or high iq individuals solve more should i i
0: mean i don't want to spend too much time going back through economics let's presume that the audience already gets a lot of it so you can go straight in
1: oh good so the production function is the most common way to measure firm productivity in the comprehensive way So, so let me back up
0: yeah, let's start with if I'm looking at the data set, what am I estimating? And then what are the independent variables that I'm using to get me there?
1: Okay, yes. So the RQ is estimated from the company production function. A company production function has output on the left-hand side and it has all of the inputs on the right-hand side. So the output that I look at is total revenues because you can't look at widgets when companies are multi-product and most companies are multi-product. And then on the right-hand side, I have the typical Inputs that you would see, which would be capital and labor. But then I also have the intangible assets or the intangible in, inputs. So R&D, advertising, and something called spillovers, which is knowledge input that you get for free. It's the knowledge that's being generated by your rivals that you can take advantage of. And the reason it's important to include that is that small companies rely more on that those spillovers than they do on their, their own R&D. And if you don't take that into account, you'll overestimate the productivity of small firms. So what RQ is exactly is it's the elasticity of R&D in generating revenue. So the output elasticity of R&D.
0: So that's a very economicsy term but it really means the like when you change R&D by let's just say a percent then that has an effect on the next year's revenues and you're trying to measure that relationship. Some firms, a, a small change in R&D can have a big change in revenue, which means they're, they have a high RQ or they're very productive, and others might be less, right?
1: Elasticity is the percentage change in output for a 1% change in that input. For a one, So the average RQ is right around 0.1. So for a 1% increase in R&D, you get a 0.1% increase in revenue.
0: And that's actually a lot more than it sounds because R&D tends to be quite small relative to revenue. That's right. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah.
0: So what kinds of interpretations or what kinds of conclusions have you been able to draw from the RQ? And then what are the best criticisms or limitations of it?
1: So the main thing I've been doing with RQ is trying to understand why we've had this 65% decline. So I've got this hammer and I'm trying to find all the nails I can possibly find to try to sort that out. Unfortunately, there's not that much data on companies' um, R&D and what they actually do with respect to their R&D. But I've been sorting through the things. The first thing that I was able to do was get access to the National Science Foundation survey of industrial R&D. So I linked RQ up with everything in there that I could find. Big finding. Do you want my big finding from that? The output elasticity of outsourced R&D is zero. Whereas on average for internal R&D, one increase in R&D gets you a 0.1% increase in revenue. For outsourced R&D, it gets you no increase in revenue.
0: What you found there, I I thought it was really powerful. The outsource R&D has an RQ of zero. So that means like literally when I increase my budget that I'm outsourcing for research and development as a company, I can expect zero additional revenues from that outsourcing. So I want to... On average, right. Let me qualify it. Of course. So so there will be a variation and some, some will gain, others will not, but it's much less in terms of the expected additional revenues from actually doing it and building that capability, that institutional capability in-house. And of course, as a defense acquisition guy, I look at the government and the defense primes as well, and it's seems almost all of their effort, especially for the government, almost all of it after the very early stages is pretty much outsourced. Do you think this uh, finding has any kind of bearing on how government contracting is done? Like, should the government actually insource and do more like arsenal slash bureau research like they used to? Or do you think that's a separate situation and these results don't really, may not apply there?
1: Okay. So what I think is going on, I, this gets back to this idea of the 120. 120- four out of 125 projects go nowhere. So one of the values of doing uh, any project is that you get the benefit those 124 kind of fueling the one that 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 survives. So I think what you what the implication is for acquisitions or for any kind of outsourcing is that what you want is you want the body that's going to benefit most from those spillovers to be conducting that activity. So if, if think about an aircraft, does it make sense to outsource the engine? And my guess is yes, that there's so many spillovers in engine design and production that Uh, you as the prime can benefit from that by continuing to subcontract for them. However, if there is a, if the design of the engine has a really significant bearing on the rest of the aircraft, then you would want those activities to be co-located.
0: Co-location. That actually reminds me of uh, a Meckling paper where he says production knowledge should be co-located with decision rights. So that also that would also mean if I want to keep the keep it located or co-located, that should also mean like the contract structure should be a little bit different as well to allow the decision rights to flow to that.
1: I haven't thought about it in a decision rights from a decision rights perspective. I've been largely thinking about it from the standpoint of these spillovers, but that's actually something worth thinking about.
0: <laughs> Before, actually, we're jumping ahead a little bit because. Your book, you don't just give this measure of RQ and then use it to show that there has been a decline in research productivity, but you actually have a bunch of recommendations for how you can boost the RQ. And so one of them, of course, was the in-house first outsourcing. But we were knocking down a lot of innovation dogma, as I would call it, as you went through. So another one was actually company size. So you found that one of the big misconceptions was that small companies are the innovative ones and they're much more innovative than big companies. So what does the evidence actually show there?
1: The evidence shows that on average, again, that RQ increases with company size. This is not a surprise to economists because for years there's always been this puzzle that firms were spending more on R&D the bigger that they got, but they were being less productive. So that makes it sound as though firms are irrational. And what was happening is, I believe, is that in these econometrics, people were failing to take into account the spillover effect, right? They were counting how many patents per dollar of r and a small firm was getting, as opposed to something closer to how much value are they creating from their R&D. That gives me an opportunity to say the distinction between RQ and these other measures of count, patent counts, is that RQ is capturing how much value you create from R and D, not how many things you how many things you create. So large firms are more productive because when they create something or when they invent something, they can diffuse it to a broader market. And that's precisely, I think it goes back to Canaro, it goes even back further than that. But the expectation is that larger firms will have greater incentives to invest in R&D precisely because they can, because they can get things out to bigger markets.
0: By the way, have you read some of uh, Ken Arrow's old RAND papers on defense acquisition and R&D in defense? No. Oh, I should, I'll, I'll send you some of them. They're actually they're pretty great. But I sure. want to stay. I want to stick on this point. I to meet him. <laughs> yeah, he's he died a few years ago, right? Yeah, or, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like five years ago. But he, he had a long life, and so did Armin Alton. And those two were just like really great together at at RAND. Back to this kind of idea of large firms, and and actually they have more distribution channels. So like that ideas have a way to jump off from there. I'm going to give you a couple pushbacks, and I want you to push back on my pushbacks. Large firms may have that kind of market power economies of scale, that kind of optionality that is engendered in just their size and the different markets that they're touching. But startups can actually take advantage of new, potentially lower cost distribution channels. And it's through those new channels that you get those, those kind of like outsized returns, as opposed to leveraging what exists. So what do you think about that?
1: So those are what people call disruption, right? where we talk about entry barriers as a way for for firms to protect their own monopoly profits. And the the disruption is when, so one of the things that happens when firms are monopolists is that they tend to do less, they tend to do less innovation because they've already captured the monopoly market and there's no incentive to go beyond that market. So yes, there were a number of entry barriers in a number of industries. And one of the really fun things was, this is the entrepreneurship side of the thing, the work that I do, is that they get these, they form, these end runs around the entry barriers, and a lot of them, as you point out, are distribution channel related. So think about Blockbuster getting disrupted by Netflix, right, when they first started doing the mail things, when all the things that are being delivered by the internet, for example, now.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess one of the issues is that a large company also provides optionality in terms of where that, I guess, R&D effort can go, but a startup can also just pivot itself pivot its go-to-market strategy as well. Does that make any sense? Or I think maybe the small and the large have the same optionality potentially, depending on how nimble the small is?
1: Yeah, they, I don't necessarily agree that one has more optionality than the other, except to the extent that small firms don't have any resources. So they, they are less inertial. They're pivoting all the time until they figure out what the right way to go is. The big distinction between small firms and large firms is that large firms are fooling all these bets, whereas small firms are just single bets, which is you know, why the venture capitalist makes money as opposed to the entrepreneurs. The most likely outcome from entrepreneurship or founding a firm is that you're going to fail, just like the um, for pro- at the project level, we see that 124 of the 125 projects fails.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's another difference there in incentives between the large and the small. So. The large can create these portfolios, as you said, and then they actually they take some of the risk reward away from the researchers who aren't participating necessarily to the same extent. Whereas like a startup, they have much more participation in the upside, but they also have a much greater risk of the downside. So do you see that kind of incentive difference or is potentially the protection from risk? Are researchers a little bit more risk averse? And so large companies actually have a competitive advantage with that with respect to that.
1: The research should be, in principle, the researchers should be more risk averse inside a company because yeah. they, they're they protected by the firm. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you were saying the opposite.
0: But it, does that um, give the, the firms an advantage because researchers want to be risk averse and they want, so maybe they get some of the benefit from a selection bias or something like that?
1: That's a neat idea. I, I remember, that's a great idea. You just need to think about it. I haven't thought about it.
0: <laughs> I, I guess when I think about some of this, the issues with, you have a large firm, they're doing a lot of research, and then some of the people in the firm will actually leave and they'll take these ideas and then they'll build them out themselves. It seems to me that's not necessarily a point for the big firms because they are either discarding them or the people inside the firm actually recognized an error that the large firm was making. And if they didn't have the option, right, you would have been never having these innovations in the first place. So it's hard to say. Or are they like symbiotic i
1: love the fact that things get spun off right because they, the company isn't making a mistake the company just says this is not this project is not big enough This is not big enough to move our needle would be one word that they might use. This project is not big enough to make an investment because we need projects that can take advantage of our whole market, not just some niche in the market. Things get abandoned for market refunds and they get abandoned for technology reasons. And my guess is that I don't have any data. I haven't seen data on this, but my guess is the bulk of them are getting uh, abandoned for market reasons.
0: Yeah, I think you did actually a really good job in the book actually talking about these interactions and how useful they were. And it seems like the disruption in the DoD is even harder because there really isn't that niche. As you said, sometimes these things don't look big enough for the firm or they're not moving the needle, so they drop them. And in the DoD, it seems like it's the same when I think of Clayton Christensen and these the disruptive innovation starts out actually worse and it's in these little niche areas, but it can grow. The DOD doesn't allow for that because it's where are the niches and usually the next system has to be better than the previous system on every front or it just doesn't get funded. So there's no like real flowering for these guys. Have you thought about that in terms of, I guess just the government space versus the ability for the private sector to actually harness that?
1: Remember, okay, so the big problem in the DOD right now is that we're doing almost no development Things are getting cut off at the research. Thing.
0: Can you expand on that? What do you mean the DoD is not doing enough development?
1: I don't. I don't want to pick on the DoD, but the DoD is one of the main the main areas of the federal government spending on R and D, right? All of the decline in development, all of the decline in federal spending on R and D is in development. So DoD needs to be a big part of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was my point. But so what came to mind was, and I don't know whether you would call this, it isn't disruptive. There are small and very cool technologies that the DOD has incubated. And when I say incubated, I don't mean it in, in a, that institutional sense. Think about iRobot. That only exists because they were using the robots. The, that languished inside venture capital for 10 years. They had no customer and then the government ended up using the robots for diffusing IEDs.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I hear that there's definitely uh, counter examples. I almost feel like with iRobot, it's like a lot of robotics might have actually started in like the DARPAs of the world, and then they boomerang out to industry. And then when it matures in industry, now it's ready to come back into the D- Department of Defense itself. So you were saying that the evidence shows, using the RQ, that large firms are actually more productive, on average with an R&D dollar than than a small firm but then you kind of balance that out with This observation that I first got from Ben Horowitz, but I think you actually beat him to it, which is the fact that it's not about big versus small only. It's also young versus old firms, or like when a firm is actually run by a founder, someone that has that experience of taking risks. So, what's that kind of relationship there between size, but then also with age?
1: So, the size we already discussed, the age. So, as you were alluding to, and as you might suspect, the older you get, there's a small, decline in RQ associated with age. And so you think of that as, you know, ossifying. And you said beside there was small, there was age, there was large, small, there was one other piece that you had.
0: Run by founders or not?
1: Oh, the founders. Yes. Thank you. So this isn't formalized because there just aren't enough founders to be able to do anything statistically significant, but here I rank the top 50 firms on this measure and there's a disproportionate share of founders in in that set. Similarly, when founders leave a company... I found in, in, in the handful of places where I've been able to see that they've left. I see that the RQ actually declines. So there does seem to be a founder effect, and people would like to understand that. And I can't answer it conclusively. So, my, but my intuition is that founders have vision, right? They know what they're doing. The R, they know what they want to accomplish. They know why they need R and D to accomplish that, and everything is cohesive. Everything makes a lot of sense. And after that. When you lose the founder, everybody else is trying to second guess what they should be doing. And I think they're too responsive to investors. And I think investors are really important. If you don't have the, if you don't have the, kind of vision, and I hate that word, the vision that the founder does, you're vulnerable to other people suggesting, oh, maybe you should be doing this or maybe you should be doing that. And the other thing, the other advantage the founders have is that uh, the investors will leave them alone. The investors with, are betting on them as much as they're betting on the company. I mean, just look at Tesla right now. <laughs> that's not a bet on the car. That's a bet on Elon Musk.
0: <laughs> and I think like when I look at the Department of Defense, of course, a lot of the big players there, those are very old companies. None of them have a, a, their founder still because they're, they're much older than that. But then you see these entrants like the SpaceX with Elon Musk, Palantir with Peter Thiel, and then Enduro with Palmer Lucky, And they're doing what you said. They have their own vision. They're just going for it. And they have, I don't want to say, less regard for investors. The, the way that they contract with the Department of Defense, which is a customer, is also they have more decision rights and they're doing more with internal funds. And shouldn't the Department Department of Defense, just be like loving these proven founders that are actually coming in into their sector?
1: I'm not sure that's an answerable question, Eric, but uh,
0: (laughs) what's your opinion?
1: (laughs) I'm not even sure I can answer with an opinion, but are these guys exciting? Yes. Should they embrace them just for the sake of embracing them? I'm not so sure. They have to be fulfilling some kind of need. uh, So new technologies come from one of two places. There's one is the Technology push, you've probably heard this from the other, is demand pull. It seems, since DOD is ultimately a customer, that they should be playing the role of demand pull. But thinking about what technologies are going to be able to satisfy the demands that they might see. So it just reminds me of the proposals that we would write at Hughes. We saw opportunities loosely defined in terms of where our technologies might go, but we weren't doing anything like market analysis. And, and then I can get to go back to tell my story. So when general motors came in and acquired us, I remember the first time we went through the proposal cycle. Again, I submitted my normal proposal came back and they said, we want to know the ROI for this project. I said, what, are are you talking about this project? This technology is 10 to 20 years away from commercialization. There's no meaningful ROI I could give you for this technology. And they said, you need to have one. (laughs) And so I came up with, you know, it had my MBA at that point. And so I came up with an estimate. It was, I thought of all the things you could potentially do, how much they would actually be worth. And I said, it's 2,047%. What do you do with a number like that?
0: Yeah. Can you talk about, like, you said Hughes was acquired by General Motors. But General Electric, you had a good story in there about how they used to do a lot of R&D and then like financialization at the top. And I think that fixation on quarterly earnings and like accounting figures actually drove them to reduce that. And that like really killed their RQ. So can you talk about the, the GE story there?
1: Yeah. And what's nice about the GE story is I think that this is the story for all firms generally. It's just nice and um, compact, but Jack Welsh was considered to be the hero of General Electric and his strategy was to exploit all of the assets inside General Electric and the stock had a huge run up. People who were investing with GE at the time did really well. Uh, the problem is he dis- he picked monopoly markets. He wanted to be one or two in each of his markets. And what you do when you're in those markets is you insulate yourself from competition. And that tends to suppress, that definitely suppresses innovation for the reasons I mentioned earlier. So yes, there was disinvestment in R&D and a decline in RQ, not surprisingly. And by the time that Jeffrey Immelt took over the company, there was nothing left to exploit. And he'd just look at what you, you can see what happened to the stock after, after
0: that. So is the moral of the story, you really have to see the quality or does the RQ... Like, you had been able to see what was going on there with the RQ, or does it really tell you that I need to know, like, the specific qualities of investments and management actually going on in the firm to understand?
1: You just need to read, in, in the case of GE, it was companies are not there to milk all of the investments that were made previously right they're they're supposed to be making new investments that that you can continue to exploit in the future gradually over time improving the set of assets that that you can take advantage of so you you want to continue you want to continue doing r&d if you're a technology based company the advantage of rq is so this may have been deliberate it looks to me like it was a deliberate disinvestment in r&d in which case rq isn't particularly helpful but if you're worried that your R, you know that your r&d is slipping which is different than cutting you know, if the productivity of r&d is slipping rq will give you an early warning signal that you might change the way that you're conducting your r&d
0: one of my economics professors actually said this right like uh, when you go, when you IPO and you get to this big company status, the, the point of your enterprise is really to milk what you've already done, and that's like your obligation to the stockholders to an extent. And some of the I think empirical data seems to show that, right? Like the older firms have less RQ, so it almost seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy that you should be almost like reducing your R and D.
1: No, no, no. High RQ means that you are very good at exploiting your R and D.
0: Past R and D, yeah.
1: Uh, yes. Continue. R&D, right? It's, you know, whatever, you know, whatever R&D I'm spending now is going to be enhancing my, is going to be enhancing my revenues in the future. So the the issue is to continue to invest in R&D so you continue to have more things that you can exploit, make your markets even bigger. It's not you don't want to, you never want to stop. The problem is sometimes outside forces cause a firm to have to to do things that ultimately hurt their RQ.
0: I think one of the issues is that a lot of firms or a lot of people look at these firms and they say, because of their size of their bureaucracy, they're actually not going to be doing R&D very well or as well. So they should create their own VC funds. But I think you talked a little bit in your book about the idea of Skunk Works and building out Skunk Works as a good way for these large companies to actually harness innovation. So can you talk about what is a characteristic of a Skunk Works factory in in a firm? And then how do you contrast that with the idea of a central lab?
1: Skunk Works, historically, are project-based okay you want to develop a particular project you want to insulate it from various problems that you think the the firm ordinarily has in developing something and so you put it in a separate building put all the put all the resources necessary inside that building and there's lots of neat examples of that being successful the distinction between that and a central lab is that a central lab is not project-based the goal of a central lab is to generate is to be generative so rather than exploiting one particular idea, what it's doing is it's generating technologies that ought to be useful throughout all of the company's business units, okay? They, they may be in a separate building, but their power, that isn't necessarily their power. Now, but I want to get back to the skunkworks idea because my favorite story that's related to this is interesting because it combines the best, the advantages of both small firms and large firms, okay? And I, th- I think Skunk Works, when people think of Skunk Works, what they're thinking is this is an opportunity to operate like a um, small firm inside a big firm. The story that I love is Xerox Technology Ventures. And this was set up after the company was embarrassed from a book in the 80s called Fumbling the Future. And what that book documented, among other things, was the fact that the market cap of companies that had spun off from Xerox was three times the market cap of Xerox itself. And that made it sound like the company... The company had made big mistakes, and they want to recover from them. As I said earlier, that I don't view those as mistakes. I view those as a neat byproduct that you generate to the world as a as a byproduct of doing good R and But what they did in XTV that was very cool was they said, "Let's take." They set up a, this venture fund, gave it thirty million dollars, had all of the normal structure of a VC, a ten year life. They actually brought in VCs to run the fund, but whereas normally corporate PCs are investing in outside technologies, what was happening at XTV is they were inv- they were investing in the things that Xerox was going to abandon. They were a recycling farm for Xerox technologies. And what was quite cool was that, first of all, the outcomes. So I think the return on the $30 million, I think they ended up making 250 to 300, 300 million. So almost a 10X return, which, outperforms any VC, anybody knows. But what was more fun is that Xerox had the writer first refusal for her projects once they came inside XTV. And there was one where Xerox had originally abandoned it because it was going to cost I want to say $25 million and take 36 months. And once it was inside XTV they completed it for I think it was $4 million in 18 months. <laughs> So what's nice about that particular example, and all the examples next XTV, if we saw them in greater detail, is that they were in, They had all the advantages of Xerox. So they had advantages to Xerox's manufacturing, to Xerox's sales force, to Xerox's suppliers, which you would never have, you would ordinarily not have if you were um, an independent firm. But you were, also, you were also set aside, and you had these high-powered incentives. And even the employees were compensated the way that founders would be, or similarly that way founders would be compensated and it worked and it was abandoned
0: (laughs) it was abandoned
1: (laughs) yeah and you know that's how you know when we teach the case that's the big question why would the company not do that the only thing that we can come up with is that those guys the the people on xtv were making more than the people inside xerox and that just created a
0: problems yeah i feel like does that model work in the Department of Defense itself? They're trying to hire people that have higher salaries than the people that manage them because they're these technical skills people. So the workforce issue in the Department of Defense and that disparity of pay potentially, it seems to also be a kind of sticking point. So I guess that's two questions. One, <laughs> what would a Skunk Works look like in the Department of Defense? And two, what kinds of incentives might make that reality if it's a good thing, if we want that?
1: So I guess I'm hooked on the idea of these discards. What is it that the Defense Department has to be, needs to be recycled more so than the idea of creating the skunk work? So that it was a skunk work for a particular purpose. So, yeah, I think it would be great for the DOD to examine what technologies if it abandoned and why it abandoned them and then see if you know you could bring in some kind of vc or incubator or some something similar to see if there was anything that they could do with those things the problem in the dod if they do it thinking of the labs rather than the companies doing it is there's not these other things to exploit like the sales like the sales force right like the marketing like the distribution system like the manufacturing systems that's what made you know this this complementer the best of both worlds where you have all the large firm advantages and all the small firm advantages is what made the xtv's example work
0: I see. Yeah, so the government could do some technology transfer with other firms that could that would be willing to, you know, take those on. That might be different. Have you looked into the the defense firms and thought about what are their incentives to go and do something like this or are they fixated on just government contract dollars for R&D?
1: So before even thinking about defense firms, I don't know any other firm who has done this. (laughs) Right?
0: Yeah, you hear about defense Uh, firms with their little VC funds, like BAE has a pretty sizable one, Lockheed has a smaller one, but they're not, I don't think they're doing what you're saying necessarily. No,
1: no, they're the opposite. They're looking externally to keep their fingers on the pulse of what's going on externally with the intent of bringing it in in house possibly. So that's a conventional definition of CVC. So their investments more so than their incubators yeah the valley of death problem is that there seems to be all of these things these ideas that nobody wants (laughs) and everybody thinks it's just that we're not selling them enough the problem isn't that we're not selling them enough it's that they inherently don't have enough merit
0: (laughs) so your view of the dod's valley of death is that Not that there's a transition problem, per se, in that the right programs aren't getting scaled. You're saying that a lot of those things just don't have enough merit to actually scale?
1: There has to be demonstrated demand. If if companies see that there's demand for something, they'll make the necessary investments to carry them forward, I believe, short of things that they don't recognize.
0: So when the DOD says oh man, we really love AI. Like, let's just say that, for example, but then it takes them five years to get that fund allocation up to close to a billion dollars. Like companies look at that and they say, well, that's not, they're not really actually interested in what they say they're interested in.
1: Yeah, money talks. And again, you know, if we have more development dollars, that's, that's the big valley of death in the DOD, I think really is that there's not development dollars. Then the companies have to fund the development on themselves. And if there's also no hope that there's a market out there, or there's not sufficient certainty that there's a market out there, then they don't see a return for the investments they, they themselves make. So the government, I think they might need to be doing more both in the de- de- development as well as procurement.
0: In development, procurement. So when you say there's not enough development dollars, are you saying the, the government just needs like a higher top line or is it like a lot of those dollars are fenced off for an F-35 or something like that?
1: You've, I think you've seen the, the curve on defense and the defense dollars. So if you take, the, I could show it to you if you wanted, but we're on a podcast, so that doesn't do your audience <laughs> any good. But the the funding of research has been at a constant level of GDP forever. The funding for development went from, I want to say, three times that to now being equal to the research funding.
0: Yeah. I looked at, I looked up this a little bit where I just was like, okay, I'll just go for the DOD budget figures and look at how much dollars were in RDT and E and procurement versus O and M. And it was something like between 50 and 60 was in the acquisition side and 60 and 40% was O and M. And now it's basically flipped. So it looks like a lot of, the sustainment kind of work is crowding out the research and development. And I guess one of the problems that we're, we're facing is for the DoD, you have these existing missions and these existing high sustainment costs that you have to pay. But if you want to get to where you can flip that where you're taking advantage of information technology you're doing new things that actually bring down production and sustainment costs using new technologies you need upfront investment to get there but if the investment's already crowded out you know you're stuck between a rock and a hard place so is the idea almost like you just have to bite the bullet in the near term in terms of capabilities, like for sustainment and just reallocate those funds to development.
1: Well, yeah, or they should get more funds, right?
0: <laughs> or just overall increase.
1: Yeah. And then the big money is in development. If you think about, if you look at any given project, the amount of money you spend on the research phase relative to what you spend on the development stage is trivial we don't need we don't need more ideas we don't need more technology we you know need people to actually either want to buy that technology at the end which gives firms the incentives to make their own development expenditures or we need to fund more development so that the amount of the the market size that we need isn't as big as it's currently to justify investment
0: here's one of the things that might result from that is I I often see like the DOD always wanting to like leapfrog so it's if you have all this like great research but not enough money for development it's like okay my development of that idea is gonna take another ten years let's just supplant that and do the next leapfrog and you're always trying to leapfrog but you're never quite fully developing the system that you need yeah
1: is a nice idea but usually what happens is that one entity leapfrogging another entity I'm not sure you can actually leapfrog yourself but
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a very good point never thought about it that way. so going back to this idea of how companies do their research and development. Another thing you brought up was this idea that over the past decades it was been it was pretty fashionable to think about oh let's decentralize our research and de- and development into the operating divisions and the people who are closer to the operations will be able to direct and pull along the research and development much better. Versus this idea that you you were describing of a central lab. So can you talk about what's the pros and cons of each and and what you're thinking is there?
1: So the idea of decentralizing is to be closer to the customer. And the thought was that these central labs were too ivory tower and therefore we ought to make them more responsive to the visions. So first of all, one problem with that is that Christensen says that's exactly what will lead to disruption, right? So too much attention to your current customers makes you vulnerable to technologies that are suitable to a different set of customers that ultimately will be on this trajectory where they'll overcome... The technological progress you're making in your own, in your, in your current technology with that set of customers. Christensen would recognize that decentralization might be a bad idea. My favorite thing is a quote from I think from Steve Jobs, which is that sometimes customers don't know what they want until you show that to them. <laughs> and related to that is the fact that if the customer is telling you what they want and maybe that they've seen it from somebody else, in which case, when you develop it, it's not going to be worth very much because it's going to be competed away. So the the research on centralization suggests that companies that have centralized R and D and when I say centralized R and D it doesn't necessarily mean that it's in a lab like we were talking about with regard to skunkworks it just means that the corporation is deciding you know where the, how to place the bets they're doing all the allocation but the research suggests that uh, firms that are centralized have forty to sixty five percent higher RQs than those that are decentralized.
0: Can you, you had a nice little story about Procter and Gamble with respect to this. Did you? Can you just expand on that to give an example?
1: Oh, sure. So they ultimately decentralized, but one of the examples of the merits of the centralized R and D is that white strips is probably their last big product, and white strips required technologies from all the different operating divisions. So it so bleaching would have been the household cleaning thing. The adhesives was from another group. I can't remember the other the other group, but definitely an effort that benefited multiple groups and came took technologies from multiple groups.
0: Let's focus on this idea of when you decentralize and you're closer to the operating units, you're closer to the customer, especially in the Department of Defense. It seems like a lot of the labs, they kind of talk about there's this constant debate that's been going on for a long time. Should we be taking more requirements from the customer and kind of defining our programs around that? Or should we be like operating with more discretionary funding? And it is we that kind of are able to determine our own path because we are like the the science and technology people we should be presenting options to the operator folks rather than taking their preconceptions and just trying to make it work
1: isn't that with the role of (laughs) irad
0: it's supposed to be the role of irad that's also that, that's for the the companies, but it's also with within like the labs themselves that when for their projects and how they request funding. So I guess it's at both levels. Should there be more discretionary funding, or should there be more requirements pull from the customer with respect to these types of labs?
1: The obvious answer is going to be that you need to balance both. But what's you know the the record on this being too divorced from the customer. When I don't, I mean, the record is the wrong word, but I heard a story that was happening inside companies where they were developing these technologies and they found that they couldn't even get, they couldn't get their divisions. They were and So one of the concerns is always that the government labs is generating a bunch of things and then nobody's picking them up. That's, that was the valley of death that I was referring to uh, earlier. I think you have a different one in mind. And all we need to do is we need to sell these things to the customer, to manufacturers. I was doing some research on central research labs and the firm itself told me that they, the central lab, can't get their own divisions to buy their technologies. (laughs) So it's a bigger problem. I I think I've lost track of your question. So just remind me what you asked
0: me. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I want to just bring out a quote here from your book talking about, it was from a Hughes Research Lab guy and he says, quote, HRL- Hughes Research Lab should be advising sectors or customers on what was important rather than the other way around. That would make a world class lab. HRL needed to be looking further ahead than the sectors or the customers. And maybe we should be doing exactly those things that no one in the sectors knows are needed. So I guess that's where I was coming from because it feels like, yes, in the Department of Defense, a lot of the projects are directed from these requirements from the customers, someone coming up with that idea and then directing it. And then even for independent research and development in the companies, a lot of times that stuff is just directed right back at the requirements. So it's like, I'm only going to do an IRAD. If I see some kind of program or or government sponsorship down there, It, it seems like there's less of those kind of big bets on their own thing. With, with the IRAD. So I, I guess on the margin, in my view, I think we need more of what that HRL guy was talking about in terms of let it, letting those folks lead through discretionary funding.
1: Right. No, I, yeah, no, it's heroic. I love that quote. And HRL was great. But the research that I'm doing now is interesting, where the preliminary results seem to indicate that, these, that companies with central labs... Have and this is different than centralization. Okay, companies with central labs have lower RQ. <laughs> oh,
0: so it's actually you're finding kind of the opposite now.
1: Yeah. Of what you were expecting? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have data. We didn't have data on it before, right? I'm mean, so I'm continually in search of data, and we there were uh, manuals of the um, American Industrial R and D manuals going back to the 20s that you know are now being digitized. We can create data sets from them, and that's what the preliminary results show. But it's just preliminary. I could be wrong.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you're letting the evidence, you're letting your opinions follow the evidence. I believe in central labs, and I will find it.
1: Yeah, no, of course. No, we're very disappointed by the results. It makes you dig a little deeper to try to see why are you getting the results. That's where your own passion, your own passion gets you to stick with something longer than it would if you know, it didn't have a bias the opposite direction.
0: Yeah, and that was the big criticism of zero. Xerox park that they were like on a hill and then they just had that valley of death problem. They couldn't transition their own stuff. And it took someone outside to go do that. But so I,
1: but to the extent that it actually was fueling the product divisions, that would be great. What I don't, what we don't know from Xerox is whether it was right.
0: Maybe one of the aspects of that is I had Steve Blank on the podcast, but the lean methodology of just, okay, it's one thing to, formulate this hypothesis and then just go build it in a vacuum and then once you're done go sell it but it's another thing to start out on that and then constantly be talking to the customer or different types of customers potential customers and, and iterating on feedback so you're you're not doing this monolithic one effort and then try to sell it off but you're like bringing in the customer into the process and then pivoting where needed I wonder if there's...
1: Well, those are two different stages, right? If you're a venture, you have to have a customer in mind because the the whole point of forming a venture is so that to make money so you're already outside of a lab if you're looking for a customer so these central labs do something different they what they're trying to do in principle is just move the technological frontier with no with no intended product or customer in sight other than that we're going to be investing in these technologies because we know we can see that the world is going to evolve in such a way that we're going to be able to use these technologies at some point
0: so i want to touch on we're running out of time but i want to touch on one of the big factors that affects the rq and it seems to affect it overall i want you to talk about like how does competitive versus kind of monopoly conditions in a given market sector affect the rq for that sector and for the firms across that sector
1: if it's a monopoly. There's not many firms in that.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. So the so what happens, in, and I've alluded to this uh, earlier in the conversation. When what happens is monopolists clearly have an economics background, but there's a monopoly. There's monopoly output, right? And what happens is if you're a technologist and you've achieved the monopoly output, you have no incentive to continue to innovate, and we can see that in lots of instances. The neat thing is, I believe, if the market structured appropriately, that um, you can solve that problem with as little as two competitors. Because what will happen, and there's a formal model, not mine, but colleagues, Dan Leventhal and Rod Adner, wrote this really nice model where what they show is that what will happen as long as you've got two as long as you've got two competitors is that they will continually compete with the, each other on either product innovation or process innovation to capture customers and you continue to get innovation you continue to get innovation and they compare that to a model where they have a monopolist and show where the monopolist stops innovating.
0: You had this nice quote from Richard Branson, and of course it made me think about the Department of Defense, but he said um, he likes to enter markets where, quote, the customer has been ripped off or underserved, where there's confusion about whether the competition is complacent. So does the DOD compliance barriers negate this as like a place that companies want to enter? Or should the DoD really be like something that like people would love to enter because it seems like they're being underserved and oh, okay. they would so, want to switch?
1: Okay, so monopsony is different than monopoly, right? So the problem with the problem with the DoD is that they're the sole customer, right? So um, what you've got is the opposite. You've got a, a bunch of contractors that are all trying to satisfy that are all trying to satisfy one customer and in, i don't remember my economics i'm an, op, I'm an obsony, but typically you won't get somebody to enter that market the basic theory is nobody should want to serve it but it must just be so big that people are willing to do that and of course once they serve it once then they're going to continue to serve that market because they're so specialized
0: yeah so i guess I lo- you brought it back to i think the answer that i like to poke on because it seems like monopsony from the government side so you're saying the monopsony structure of the government in its decisions over programs because it used to be you might have multiple customers in the DOD, right? The, the services could have competed and done done stuff like competed against each other, had re- redundant programs, but that's gone away. So because of the monopsony where the government is the single buyer, it actually makes that an unattractive place for people to enter, because I guess the whole point of monopsony is that you have the market power to drive down their prices so that they're always at zero economic profit or something like that. Yep.
1: Yep. And then they make it worse by things like second sourcing.
0: So the, so if we're talking about defense industry competition as a problem, and we always hear about government folks, we need more competition, and the whole defense industry would be a giant monopoly, right? Like, and we're trending that way. Monopsony. Monopsony. No, monopoly. Actually, because, right? Okay, go ahead. Because Lockheed Martin has basically a monopoly on fifth generation fighters. Northrop Grumman has a monopoly on, you know, stealth bombers. Boeing is going to be the only tanker maker. So the government's monopsony is creating monopolies or poor competition incentives on the other side. So if when government folks talk about competitive problems in the industry, they should be looking at themselves. Is, is that kind of what you're... Mm-hmm.
1: I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so to look at a commercial equivalent, the closest commercial equivalent that I can think of is Toyota. So Toyota is a huge customer. So they could be the equivalent monopsony for many of their suppliers, taking like 80% of their output. And yet they still can continue to maintain multiple suppliers for most of their goods. So it's interesting that they're able to do that, but that might be a good model for the DOD.
0: So I want to right before we wrap up here, I, I want to get to this big question that has been concerning a lot of folks and myself included. And it's that debate on whether science is slowing down. And one of the big examples that a lot of people bring up is this idea that, OK, we have Moore's law, so that's increasing the The number of transistors we can put is increasing double every 18 months. But I actually have to put more and more resource inputs into this. So the number of researchers has gone up 24 times just to maintain this constant growth rate in terms of Morris Law. So one of the big explanations everyone's pointing to is the low hanging fruit. So we've already captured all the low hanging fruit. And now it's more difficult to make those next advances. Uh, But there are other explanations And so, can you just kind of talk about this problem and, like, how do you see it a little bit differently than just the low hanging fruit issue?
1: I see it very differently, <laughs> as you probably know. So I actually have a, there's a paper out, it's called "Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find? And it makes this argument, and they specifically go into the example that you're talking about, which is the Moore's Law. That paper is based on a theory from Chad Jones that, that he advanced in his paper from 1995, which also was the first one to, which is the first place I know of that documented this decline at the aggregate level in R&D productivity. And his argument is that there's a problem with Romer's uh, endogenous growth theory in that, or not that if there's a problem with it, but that he is a special form of a more general functional form in which the, so I don't know if you're Romer, but basically growth in the economy is tied to growth in ideas or growth in knowledge. And the growth in knowledge in turn is a function of how much knowledge you had to begin with. How many researchers you have doing R and D, and how productive the researchers are in doing R and D. And so Chad Jones's revision of that is to say that the Romer has argued that the exponent on knowledge is one, so constant returns. And so what Jones is saying is no, there's not um, constant returns to knowledge. There's decreasing returns to knowledge. He calls that fishing out the idea that all the good ideas have used up, and so have been used up, and so we're continually fishing out poorer and poorer ideas but he never so they have a paper the paper that came out this year had or last year now it was April of 2020 which includes Chad Jones as one of the co-authors is nominally testing his idea but they actually never test the exponent on knowledge and so we have a paper where we do that and show that's that there is no evidence of decline in the elasticity of the stock of knowledge. Okay. So so empirically there isn't support for it. Now, how do they how what are they doing in the paper? In the paper they are taking specific examples of technologies or fields And they're showing decline. Now, we know for all time, (laughs) three different domains have characterized these S curves in technology, right? So we had them in sociology of science, we have them in evolutionary economics, and we have them in the management. You know, we actually have them in the management field. And the norm is that when a new technology comes out, it's slow to, it's slow to produce anything, then we've got this dramatic rise. And then we get a point of diminishing returns in that technology, which is where we are with respect to with respect to Moore's Law and with respect to all the things that they look at in this paper. Now, the really hopeful thing is, and we know this from past sociology of science, et cetera, et cetera. Is that as a new technology becomes exhausted, it becomes replaced by another technology, right? So there's this renewal, and we find in this in the work that we're doing is that there is in fact declining. Our that RQ declines within within domains over time. So if you take the maximum RQ, so their argument is motivated by mean average RQ. But if you actually, if it's true that ideas are declining, the whole distribution of RQ should be declining. And what we find is that it's at the economy level, it's actually increasing over time. RQ, if you take the maximum, you take all the firms in each year and look at the maximum RQ in that year and go year to year, that level of RQ is increasing over time. It's only decreasing if you look within industries, which I think is really cool. As technologies decay, then what's happening is we create new firms or new technologies that replace them and that's where we're getting growth. So I think it's
0: optimistic, right? Yeah, you definitely have the optimistic view. And I think it's also an intuitive view that kind of conforms with when I look at the world, it seems to make sense there. And it seems like a lot of those guys are like, we we don't have the same progress in physical stuff, but then, it's okay, you're throwing out all the progress we have in the digital space and saying that's not part of yeah. this S-curve. One of the things that uh, I would like to get your view on this, it seems like the researchers, what they were trying to do was be agnostic as to like, like industry. So they're just saying, I want a general measure of something like how many computations can I do per dollar per second or something like that. And so I should be jumping between S curves in order to keep that same growth along that attribute path. So why, if I'm using that kind of measure, why does that not work out in the same way as what you're saying? If, let's isn't just say this, Okay.
1: Moore's law is density on a chip, isn't it?
0: True, yeah. So that is a technical (laughs) measure. But I think, I, I don't know if they were using Moore's Law or they were using some kind of surrogate for it, which was getting back to these more general performance attributes. So I guess another one that they used was like speed or something of transportation, which would be like, okay, I can move from a cart, a horse-drawn cart to railroad to truck transport to aircraft transport or something like that. And so you should be jumping. How do you think about those measures? Are, if they're all going down, um, what does that say? Or is that just, we're just not measuring the right thing. We should be shifting how we measure things. So,
1: so let me give you a chance. So first of all, firm when i talk to companies they laugh. you know and about it this idea that we're running out of ideas right? yeah. <laughs> you think about self-driving cars you think about the internet you think about smartphones so my so what i would throw out to you is okay let me let me give you a measure and so let me give you a measure which is how many keystrokes can i do in an hour <laughs> you can measure that but then what would be that's not meaningful right because pretty soon we're not typing keystrokes anymore we're doing other things
0: Yeah, I think that that's got to be the answer. I think that we have all these numbers of attributes we could be measuring, and those are ever-changing, and they're all incommensurable against each other. So once I choose one attribute, I have to, like— a cell phone. What am I going to measure? Like that it's picture or it's like ability to communicate or it's in- access to the internet. And then they're all incommensurable. So I don't really know how to collapse all that. So I'm really, I think that's the key is maybe just like we're focus. we're trying to focus on the wrong thing. I, and, and potentially that's where the RQ and your, your studies are helping because it's, it is a ge- more general measure, right? Than like, I have to select the one thing
1: well, each of the the measures that they look at are are no. They try to do an uh, equivalent of RQ too. They look at firms, but yeah, that's the you were asking before about the disadvantage of RQ. So RQ is not a project level measure, so it can't help you with that, and it can't help you with it can't help you with things like labs, right? Because it relies on a production function, and production functions are and labs don't generate revenues from their R and D. But getting back to the where you were talking about the issue of measure and as soon as you identify a technology and you get a measure that's tied to that technology you run the risk that you're going to miss the your measurements going to miss the the things that you care about
0: so what's next for you or any big questions that you're trying to tackle
1: i'm still looking for the nails right so one of the new nails is the the corporate research labs mostly what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to diffuse the rq Thought firms as soon as they've had this measure would just jump at it and they actually aren't, which has been really frustrating for me. Cause I thought as soon as they would have it, they would want to improve their RQ. and then we would solve that whole we would reverse this 65% decline and we would revive economic growth. Right? <laughs> That's not working. What I'm what I've been doing is realizing that the two levers that are gonna be pretty more powerful for me are the investor level because firms are responsive to their investors. But I also like the DOD lever. So I've been working, not just DOD, but the federal government in general. And I think that trying to come up with ways that policymakers can provide the right incentives for companies to improve their RQ. So one would be changing tax credits so that they reflect RQ or improvements in RQ, having IRAD reimbursement be tied to RQ, and having R&D contracts utilize RQ as
0: one of the criteria of merit. Some interesting stuff, and I'm going to be interested to follow up and and see how that goes. Anne-Marie Knott, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Her book is How Innovation Really Works. So, audience, please check it out.
1: Thanks very much, Eric. It's a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.